Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 25. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he has been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walked in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on the grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word.
Thank you so much, Audrey, for reading God's Word for us this morning. I know that we have a lot in our service today, but I I feel like there are times, uh, if you read news, that even Christians ought to acknowledge there is grief in our world. So I'd like for us to take a moment and plead God's mercy. Can we do that now? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in this season of Lent freshly aware of how much Christ gave up for us. We are intensely aware that he gave up the comfort of glory so that we might know grace and mercy. We want to ask now your grace and mercy on behalf of the Teal family. In the tragic loss of their son this week, help them, O God, to seek you. God, I pray that you would rise up in them as a God of comfort. Reveal in their hearts that you are trustworthy even in tragic moments. That you are sovereign and are searching for your glory even now in their grieving family. God, may they find comfort in you. And Father, we also know that every life of every faith is precious to you. And as we struggle to express our grief over the extraordinary loss of life this week in New Zealand, I pray that you would be healer, not only to those who are injured, but to those whose hearts are broken, to those whose peace has been shattered, to a nation. Oh God, will you not use your people to re-sow this nation together, to resist the evil that is in this world. And God, we even pray for our neighbors who worship on Friday, that they would rejoice that they live in a country that is vigilant, that seeks harmony among all faiths. So God, I, I pray that those who seek to act in hatred would be put to shame. And that your name would be exalted and glorious even in these tragic days. God, we do pray for our own nation and for the government that guards us. Preserve the peace of this glorious multicultural mosaic. Because in peace, the gospel thrives. So not just for our comfort do we ask, God. But for the sake of your name, will you guide our government Will you give them wisdom? And will you help us to know that every man, woman, and child, no matter their faith, they are made in your image? God, let gentleness and understanding invade our hearts. May it be expressed in mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know we have a lot to get through. You probably noticed 25 verses. I will not do them justice this morning. We will rush through them, but we'll do our best. 
Here's what I have been considering as I read those 25 verses. In fact, I had to start before those 25 verses because, as you know, the Apostle Paul wrote in one very long sentence with no punctuation. So the past several chapters is really just one big thought. So as I was considering this, I, I, I began to realize it's just absolutely amazing to me how very quickly we develop the pride of ownership. Uh, th this is our, our granddaughter's first Christmas. Now, now, as you can probably see from this photo, she's not focused on the lights or the trees or like what presents, but this carpet is amazing. She doesn't care or know who owns the carpet. She doesn't feel like she has any space that is personal that no one else should come to or touch. She is just simply filled with the wonder of carpet. And it's a wonder to me how quickly this wonder has been exchanged for entitlement. It, it happens very quickly. Now, I don't live with her, so I don't know how it's happening with her, but as you know, Sherry and I raised three boys. If you raise three boys, you have no slap fights in your house. All of the fights in our house were bare-knuckled brawls, and they were always about the same thing. He's on my side of the room. He touches me, Dad. He's stealing my toys. He used my toothbrush. Now, that one is a bit over the line, but this, this is my stuff. It's like my ball, my bat, my person, my space. And, and one day, I just had enough. Our oldest son was about nine. Our second son was seven. Our, our third son was just still in process. But there was a big bang. I ran upstairs, and our second son is a little bit comatose and wakes up screaming. And so, of course, you know who's in trouble, the older son. I said, nameless? <laughs> Actually, I already said he's the oldest son. What did you do to your brother? And he didn't tell me what he did to his brother, but it was clear because his brother was knocked out. He said, he touched my toy, it's my toy. And I said, well, you got that toy free in a Happy Meal. It's my toy. He had had enough and so had his dad, so I decided to manage it. Now, I didn't consult the mother, I just did it on my own, spiritual leader. I said, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, I know you got that toy free in a Happy Meal, but actually, you know who bought you that Happy Meal? Me. I bought it. It's actually not your toy, it's my toy. I'm just sharing it with you. He got mad. He went stomping upstairs. Now, at this time, we were living in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan has real winters, not like my hometown, Vancouver. It has real winters. He went stomping upstairs, and I came down, and I said to Sherry, I've handled it. And then he came back down, full of winter dress, opens the door. I said, where are you going? He said, he said I'm running away from home. And of course, Sherry said, now you've done it. <laughs> okay, I started this, but I'm quick to pivot. So I said, not in my snow pants, you're not. 
Not in my jacket, you're not. Take off my boots. You can't run away with my boots. He thought for a minute and went storming upstairs. I managed it. Then, after an hour, it was still quiet upstairs. Now, those of you who are parents know that quiet isn't awesome. It means something's happening. Something's stewing in the pot. But, but I'm a little bit stubborn, so I, I just let it go until the sweet mother that I live with said, you know, you know Ian, you need to, to go upstairs and check on them. So I did, and this is the sight that I saw when I walked into his bedroom. All of his things were pushed up against the walls, and he was sitting in the middle of his room on the floor, completely naked. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? And you know what he said, I'm not going to wear your clothes. <laughs> That's my DNA. And it's the powerful pride of ownership that believes we are entitled to stuff. We are entitled to the things we have gained. And the entire point of these several chapters in Romans is that in a diverse, multi-ethnic group of people like the Roman church and like the Singaporean church, in that diverse context, if we have begun to own that which has come to us as a gift, we cannot ever live gracefully together. It is amazing how quickly I began to own the thing that came to me as a free gift. So let's get into this. The work of faith. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? We learned that word last week. Pastor Eugene taught us oxymoron. Two opposing words have opposite meanings. He gave some examples. I was thinking of my own. Jumbo shrimp, that's an oxymoron. Military intelligence, sorry, those of you guys. <laughs> I'm, from Canada, I'm from Canada. That just Okay, cut that one out. I'll probably lose my visa. <laughs> those are oxymorons. But, but a working faith, that, that's supposed to be an oxymoron. But, but let's listen as the Apostle Paul talks about the work of faith, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. But as his due, that's entitled. You, you can tell all the Christians who have developed this entitled pride of ownership. Okay, Eugene, I'm going I'm, I'm to borrow it again. This, this working, not really sitting down, but walking around and working for God. And, and, and we're quite proud of all the work we do for God, even though it exhausts us. Even though it leads to service burnout, even though it makes us weary, at the end of the day, we can say, I'm exhausted. Now that I'm older, I can retire from service. 
if we work for something, what we get from it, we feel entitled. I'll just be honest. I, I, don't, I don't love it when our other pastors preach. I mean, it's not because I love to be up here. I really don't love public speaking, but, but the reason I don't love it is because um, Sherry takes notes. And, and I do too, but, but Sherry knows that every Tuesday we have staff service evaluation. We talk about how the service flow went and, and anything we could learn from the sermon. And so when she sees me taking notes, she's assuming that I'm taking notes that I think the pastor should learn. And so she takes notes that she thinks I should learn. And then she preaches it again to me on her Monday morning walk. So this is benefit of Sherry's notes, Eugene. This is the sermon I heard Monday morning. We see ourselves as basically good. We are critical of others. We are impatient because others don't do what we want when we want. And then she shifted to first person plural to first person singular just so I would get it. I need to be right all the time. I secretly need recognition. By the way, I'm on medical leave right now. <clears throat> we feel entitled to respect and success. I get anxious when I'm not in control. I get defensive when someone points out sin. I lack compassion. I am slow to repair our relationships when they're broken. That is entitled pride. Pride is there if our faith is justified by our good works. We can feel prideful, but not before God, because when you work you just assume the boss is going to pay for it. You assume and you are act absolutely entitled. And that's why in verses 6 through 8, he says, just as David, meaning be more like David, who speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness separate from works. When he says this in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Are you celebrating today your good work? Or are you celebrating the fact that God has stopped counting? That's where Paul got his idea about our love for each other. Love keeps no record of wrong. When I'm working and feeling entitled, I record wrongs in spite of the grace that has come to me that God says, I've stopped counting yours, Ian. Paul encourages a diverse people to rest on the work of faith that God is doing in our lives. Do you understand, those of you who, heard this, who were here last week, this was the point of Eugene's message. I, I mean, 
this might be good for us to do. Just take a moment, if you, if you don't mind, just check your pulse right now. I, I'm not suggesting that some of you are sleeping, but I, I will say, if, if, if you feel your pulse racing right now, you need to, we need to raise your hand and call an usher and send you to the hospital because you, you're, you're in trouble. And I say that because you're not working right now. The bench is working. You're just resting on the bench, right? It, that, that's what faith is. That's the whole point of Eugene's message. When you rest in God's work, that is the work of faith. God is doing it. We are resting, not working. But pride of entitled ownership suggests that we are working expecting someone to recognize us God would be good. If not God, then hopefully the elders will know how awesome I am. Surely someone in my CG will be grateful for me. The work of faith is God's work. Our faith comes through experience with the bench. Our faith comes through experience with the God who is faithful. Well, let's talk for a moment about the fruit of faith. Those verses are wrong. Verses 9 and 10, beginning in 9 and 10. should be 9 through 15. My typo. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, <clears throat> Abraham was not circumcised be because he was looking for faith. He was circumcised as a result of the faith he already had. His, circumcised, his circumcision was a result of his belief. He didn't believe as a result of being circumcised. He did this work to himself, cut off a piece of his own flesh as a sign. So circumcision was a sign of faith that already existed. That's what he says in verses 11 through 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Now, several weeks ago, we heard Paul bring this up. This is the role of His Spirit today. For those of you who are considering a membership and you hear this word circumcision, please relax. We don't do that. But His Spirit does it. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. Remember he said in the Old Testament, we were sealed. Abraham was sealed by circumcision. We are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Just as circumcision was a sign of Abraham's faith, so today the presence of his Holy Spirit producing fruit in me that I don't get from my ancestors... is a sign of the faith that I now have in His work. And it is His Spirit that is a knife in my life which sanctifies me. It is 
he who cuts away with surgical precision all the flesh in Ian that is ungodly and does not honor his glory. We call that sanctification. The trouble you have, the difficulty at work, the stress at school, just the anxiety of living in a broken world, he uses to cut us in ways that will honor and glorify him. And I pray that all of Ian will be cut until only Jesus is obvious. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. Again, I know I'm going quickly. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be heir to the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, sorry, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why when people are driving in Germany, they never break the law. Why? Because there's no speed limit. The only reason I know I'm breaking the law is when I see a sign in Singapore that says, speed camera ahead. And I look down at my speedometer, and right away I feel what? Guilty. Brake lights, that's what everybody sees behind me. That's what the law does. All it does is exposes guilt and demands a verdict. But the sacrifice of Christ abolished the law, and instead of what I deserve, I get mercy. And I don't get what I do deserve, which is punishment. This is the fruit of faith. The mercy of God that flows out of me. That is why a church named Grace ought to be full of grace, overflowing with mercy toward one another. That is the fruit of faith. I want to talk um, quickly about a goal of faith. Now, a lot of us uh, think, well, you know, is there really a goal of faith? Isn't fruit also a goal? I'm saying, yes, there, there is a penultimate goal, which is the fruit of mercy and grace. But there's also an ultimate goal of faith. And I want to summarize it because we're short on time, but let me do this quickly. First, the righteousness of faith depends on a faith that rests on grace. That's what he says in verse 16a. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Not what I've earned, but what I have not earned. Not what I deserve, but what only Christ bore. Then, secondly, it's guaranteed to all offspring. Not just to Jewish people, but to all offspring of Abraham. It applies to many, not just 
two nations, not just the Jews through Isaac, not just the Arabs through Ishmael, but many nations. In fact, that word that has been translated many in English is the Jewish or Hebrew word that means hordes. I don't know how many that means. Hordes means, yeah, that's a real bunch. That's a lot. And, and we know when he means hordes, he means the whole earth. This grace has been offered to all. There is not just one chosen people and we beg to, to be entered into their, their uh, little sect. God has offered this to all. And this is fascinating to me. I've, I've just got to stop here. Undiminished by our doubts. And, and this is why it's so very important to realize that the New Testament that we love does not nullify the Old Testament. We can only truly understand what the apostles talk about in the New Covenant or the New Testament if we have an understanding of the foundation which is supplied to us by the Old Testament. This is what Paul says. He, meaning Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of his wife Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, do you think you can possibly be that perfect? No, right? And the good news is, Abraham wasn't either. He never doubted. Doesn't mean his faith was perfect. Because here's how it happened. In Genesis chapter 12, God introduces himself to Abraham, then called Abraham, and says, I will bless you and make you a great nation. You and your wife will birth a son, and through that seed there will be many, more than the sands in the sea. And so Abraham, what does he do? He gives his wife away twice. That's called self-sabotage. Right? Have you ever done that? You know, God wants to bless you, and you're like, ugh, I, I wrecked it again? It's okay. The founder of many faiths did the same thing. How else, Abram, are you going to be the father of many if you keep giving your wife away to other men? So from self-sabotage, he went to self-help. Oh, uh, my wife's old. Sleep with my wife's servant. Is, is that a man who has perfect faith? God then responds in chapter 17 and blesses Abram again. He says, I will make a covenant with you. You shall be a great nation, and many nations will be blessed because of you. Abram laughs, and so did Sarah laugh. And then Isaac is born. Now, now here's, here's the thing. Before we get too hard on Abraham, you know, that space between Genesis 12 and, and Genesis 21, that is 25 years. Have you ever waited for something, a promise for 25 years? If you did, you are a true a saint, not a Baptist saint, because that's all of us. You're like a Catholic saint. If you wait 25 years for one promise, you, you're amazing. What was God doing in that 25 years? 
He was teaching Abram to rest and trust the bench. It's not that our faith is ever perfect. Our faith is undiminished by doubts because it's continually nurtured by God's faithfulness. Not that my faith is perfect, but I serve a perfectly faithful God. And every time I've tried to self-sabotage my walk with Him, He has been faithful. Every time I have been faithless or faith little, He has been faithful more. This is the God who is faithful. I just need to close, which means another 10 minutes. Uh, somebody asked me one time, hey, Ian, what, what, is, what was the most difficult experience you've ever had as a missionary? And I, I gave it some thought. It actually took me a couple of days, and then I had to write her back and say, well, actually, the most difficult experience I've ever had as a missionary was actually a fake experience. Because in 2013, our mission decided because of the world and the shape it's in, they needed to take our leaders to the bush in North Idaho on the side of a mountain and train us to be equipped to respond to kidnappings, revolutions, government inquisition. And I I was taken to this Idaho huge ranch. It had rivers running through it, it had mountainside, and it was bush. And I want to tell you, I felt really good when I saw that place. Because I knew what was going to happen. They gave us a bit of coaching and said, you know, you're going to be chased down, you'll be kidnapped. Um, we had to have a health checkup to make sure we, we wouldn't have a heart attack. And I looked at that and I said, these guys don't know what they're in for because me, I'm Canadian, this bush is my home. I know what can be eaten. I know the mushrooms that are protein, and I know the mushrooms that give you happy dreams. I, I can, like, I can, I can survive. I'm going to go in this bush, and they will never catch me, and they will never find me. I may just walk all the way north home. And then they put me in handcuffs and took my glasses. <laughs> and are you still here? Oh, oh there you are. So, so suddenly, I, I couldn't see a good guy from a bad guy. So suddenly, I felt so paralyzed, I had to look down to see the plants I wanted to eat. I, I couldn't find the rescue points. It was the worst, most miserable experience of my life. In 11 days, I lost six kilos. So it was like fat camp for me. I was running every day, never sleeping. They, 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 one day they chained me to a tree all night long and every 30 minutes sprayed cold water on me. By the time the morning came, I was sure I had pneumonia. Another time I couldn't find the path, so I just floated down the river. And when I saw a boat, I went underwater as far as I could. <clears throat> they locked me in a coffin for 24 hours and played heavy metal music the whole time. Honestly, that part I kind of liked, but the rest of it was, was a nightmare. And, and one time, on the 10th day, I was just famished. I was exhausted. In fact, 
when you are totally immersed in that kind of scenario, you begin to lose your grip on reality. And it felt real. These were real military men. They had real MR whatevers. I'm from Canada, so our military has to share the gun. I'm not an expert. But the big guns they had. And on the 10th day, a guy stopped me and said, okay, you're, you're good, just relax. And he gave me a plum. I was famished. I'd been running for 10 days. I was thirsty. And I thought, I am going to enjoy this plum. So I took two terrible minutes to peel the sticker off. And just as I was bringing it to my mouth, five men jumped out of the ground and kicked the plum out of my hand. I'm still grieving over that plum. <laughs> On the 12th day, I, I was finished. And I ran around a corner, and there was a man with a rifle. And he said, Ian, stop. We're done. It's over. When, when I heard that, I couldn't say anything. I just fell to my knees. Do, do you know you cannot ever appreciate blessing unless you have known what it's like to be fully conquered. This is why, because the sinful mind is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This is why God's ambition is to conquer me fully, take every thought captive. Why? Because he desires to bless me. That Hebrew word, barek, which means blessed. I know in the New Testament, it's also usually translated as fortunate. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are the pure in spirit. But you know, in the Old Testament, that word barak literally means Kneel down. Fully conquered. So, do you understand the ultimate goal of this faith, this declaration of righteousness, when God says that the nations may be blessed? It's not really about making Abram great. It's not really about making Grace Baptist Church awesome. It's about making his name great among the nations. It's that every knee would bow, every tongue. That's what he means, that all nations would be blessed. That his name would be from sea to sea, from coast to coast, glorious and awesome. That's why he declares us righteous. We need to go. I'm going to let you read the final verses. But I want us to bow together and say this to you. 
that righteousness of faith. It is as effective now as it was in Abram's day. It's as active today as it was 4,000 years ago. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that anyone may boast, for we are his workmanship. You, friend, you are his masterpiece. You feel differently because you've made mistakes in your life. You feel differently because you've self-enabled, you've self-inflicted wounds. But it is his work, not yours, that declares you righteous. You're not here by accident. You are here so that you could know that God has declared you his work created in Christ for good work, the work that he has prepared for you from the beginning of time. And what is that work? The same work he gave to Adam the same work he gave to Abraham, the same work he gives to us, be fruitful and multiply. This may surprise you, but there are many Christians in our world today who, like Abraham, never had a spiritual child. No one that could say, I discovered God because of this, my spiritual father. Because those who work for their salvation, we busy ourselves with other work. Work before other believers because we secretly need approval. And then we begin to feel entitled for the faith that came to us freely, but at great cost to him. So one reflection question. One question. Would you say that you are fully conquered? Does the Lord have all of you? Would you today say, yes, Lord, take every part of me. In my heart, I kneel before you, hand uplifted, and say, oh, God, come and do your work in me so that I might rest in the grace that you offer. That is all. No work on your part, but simply lean completely your whole weight 
all of your anxiety, all of your challenges, all your misgiving, lay it all on the bench of a God who is perfectly faithful. Father God, we are in wonder over the carpet of your affection for us. We are amazed that you invite us to rest in your grace. So God, will you give us the gift right now to turn to you, to turn away from our own work, with, from our own effort, from our own merit, turn to you and find you faithful. Give us the courage so that your name might be exalted in our hearts, but also in the nations who would know us and observe you living in us. Do it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.